Thank you. So it's uh, good to be here and back at this meeting again. And what I want to do in this talk, I think, is alert you to a trend that's going on in cosmology that I'm sure all of you have probably heard about a little bit, but it's one that I think has very important implications for both science and theology. And uh, someone last night called me the multiverse curmudgeon, and I guess that's what I'm going to be, so here goes. Uh, the puzzle of existence has been theology's oldest question, and we can think of it like this. Whenever anything exists, we can count how much of it, it, of, of it there is, but we can always group it together and call that one. There's one thing, one group of people here, one planet, one universe. It's certainly distinct from nothing, and in fact, the concept of zero in history was a hard one to grasp. But most of us learn the fact that you can have an absence of something. Conceptually, that's nothing. And so the big puzzle that's always been theology's oldest question, why is there something instead of nothing? In other words, why do we see a one when we could have seen a zero? Why does anything exist at all? And this has generally been regarded as, as one of the chief purview questions of theology. And the reason we usually ascribe to that is, well, there's a God that causes this to exist by whatever means. Well, what I want to show you today is there's another number, not really a number, it's called infinity. And it would correspond to the notion that everything exists. You can't count what you've got. No matter how much of something you've got, you've always got more. That's the notion of infinity. And this notion uh, as an actual <coughs> existing thing is now being seriously entertained in cosmology and it leads to a new challenge. Why do we see one instead of infinity if indeed there is just uh, only finitely many things? In other words, the new question for theology is why is there something instead of everything? It's sort of the inverse question. So the old challenge, why is there something instead of nothing, was basically met by this. Uh, many scientists would like to think, and, and it's been alluded to in this meeting, that magic used to be the mechanism. Spirits caused it to exist. There's some supernatural means. We can't explain it. But scientists generally don't like that. They would rather replace that explanation with a combination of reason and observation and we call that science, and this leads to some kind of typically mechanistic understanding. Now, in fact, when you incorporate things like uh, quantum theory, uh, the notion of mechanism is more subtle. But the basic idea is nature can be objectively understood in, in a certain uh, mathematically containable, calculable way. Now, theology has gone one step further with this. It starts, okay, there is mechanism to be sure, but through a discipline of reflection and revelation, which when done properly is not at all trivial or easy, leads to some notion of meaning. People want to understand what does this all mean for me personally, for my community, for my world as a whole? Where does it all fit together, and this is part of the reason why we're here. The meta-reason, as described by Micah, why are we here? To do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That is certainly, we think, part 
of the reason. That's where this second chain of reasoning comes in. And what I found interesting at this meeting is a lot of effort being spent in trying to follow both of, of these arrows through. Well, what about the new challenge? Okay, why is there a new challenge? I'll briefly mention uh, why this is. There are both bottom-up and top-down reasons for it. And then I'll briefly touch on this question. Does everything exist? And if so, what are the implications for both science and theology? And then very briefly, where next? Well, cosmic theology has become a discipline in its own right, and I think this slide was shown at an earlier presentation at this meeting. And I think it basically consists of three parts. Here's the history of the universe, by which I mean everything we are able to observe in principle, from the Big Bang until now, where we have the WMAP satellite symbolizing now. And it has, I think, three parts. There's a notion of injection. How did it all get started? Is there, in fact, a beginning? What caused the beginning? These are where science and theology, one of the key places where they meet together. There's also a notion of direction. We evidently do not live in a static universe. We live in a universe of change. It's going from someplace to someplace else. Is it cyclically repeating, the way Eastern religions would say, or does it have an ultimate eschatological destiny, which would be the Christian assertion and also my own? The third is a notion of selection. Right now, what do we see about the universe? Does it have interesting features from which we may draw theological insight and inference? And it's this last one I want to focus on, one question that emerges time and again, are we special? Is our universe a typical specimen out of all the possible universes one might think of? Or is it just any old thing out of the heap that we could think of? Well, the answer, and I regard this as a discovery, not by any one individual, but one that percolated over the last 40 to 50 years, that the answer is no. We seem not to be living in any old kind of universe, but rather in a universe that has definite particular features that are essential to our existence. And so the bottom-up, this is going to lead to the question of everything, and the bottom-up reasons for that have to do with cosmic fine-tuning and biophilic selection. These are things that emerge from observation. And there are top-down reasons from theoretical physics that come from cosmic inflation and string theory. I don't have time to talk about both of, all four of them, so I'll briefly talk about two, biophilic selection from the bottom up and cosmic inflation from the top down. And then one has the question, what is the significance of this speciality of cosmic selection? So. Brandon Carter, in some sense, is regarded by many people to have formally started this off, although there are historical uh, antecedents to that. And he asked, does the existence of intelligent life, assuming we have it, on planet Earth, tell us something about the properties of the universe as a whole? So the basic idea is this. We compare our universe with a set of possible universes that would be allowed by the known or mathematically possible laws of physics. In other words, we now have a set of laws of physics that describe the universe as we know it. May not be fully complete, but it's pretty darn good at this stage of the game. But we also know these laws could have been different and could have described other kinds of universes. So we ask, well, do those universes have features that are a little bit different from ours or a whole lot different? So you'd make this comparison conceptually. And then you ask, 
Well, one thing we know about our universe is that it has living things, at least in one planet and one place. Are the features that allow life to exist typical? In other words, in any old universe you'd find, you'd have them, or are they special? And the answer, this is what I regard as the discovery, is that our universe does indeed appear to be very special, finely tuned for the existence of many things that make it life hospitable, or biofriendly, or biophilic, hence the name. So here's an example of some of the constants of nature that I've listed from the Handbook of Chemistry and Physics. And they look uh, boring to many people. Some might say this is why some people don't go into science or engineering. They're just sets of numbers you can measure in the lab. And, and in high school, I actually did find this kind of dull when we measured. I think, well, okay, what's the big deal? It's a number. Let somebody else measure it. But these numbers have important features. If we consider an atom and look at electrons, neutrons, and protons symbolized by these figures that I show in the arrow, obviously not drawn to scale, we notice that the masses of these objects have particular values, and I've colored those for the neutron and proton in red. So if you go down to about the fifth decimal place, you can ask, well, what if I tweaked that 9 and made it an 8? What would happen? That's like a 0.005% change, or 0.2% change, sorry. If it were just 0.2% lighter, the neutron that is, all protons would decay based on what we know about the laws of physics. There would be no atoms, there would be no molecules, and none of us would be here to discuss the issue. Suppose I adjusted that number the other way. What if I made the neutron 0.2% heavier, or the proton 0.2% lighter? Hydrogen would not be able to form. Without hydrogen, there's no water. Without water, there's no life. At least any life as we know it. Some people say, well, Rob, how do you know there isn't some other weird kind of life? I don't. But it's not up to me to say that there is. Those that think there is better find solid evidence that it's there. Even if it is, it doesn't explain why this kind of life, carbon-based, is special. So that leads to what we call the anthropic principle, which is states that we can only live in a universe whose laws of physics permit our kind of life, whose structure permits our kind of life, and whose initial conditions at the Big Bang and in other systems permit our kind of life. Now, this is sort of obvious when you think about it. If fish had brains, they'd discover they had to live in water. Fish got to swim, birds got to fly, right? So that part is obvious. The part that is not obvious is that these conditions are special, that life needs special permission. In other words, the physical laws and structure and conditions that allow life are not typical out of all the kinds of universes we find. They're very uncommon. This is what makes this interesting. If it were common, we wouldn't ever have these discussions. So the laws and structure and initial conditions are special, and I contend this is not obvious. Nobody knew about it more than 50 years ago. In fact, most people didn't know about it even more than 20 years ago. It was discovered through a slow process. So out of all possible universes, we are not in a typical set. So is this the result of some divine lottery where life is the grand prize? Is this the result of superintelligent selection or... Are we just one small part of a vast multiverse where the special condition is there because all conditions exist? If you have a lottery, you've got a million losing tickets and one winner, so it's no surprise that somebody's the winner, provided 
there really were a million tickets handed out and everybody got them. The idea of the multiverse is we avoid the previous assertion that we are, in fact, cosmically super-selected by a god, say, by saying that all possible conditions exist. So if they all exist, clearly ours has to exist, and so we're here because we're here because we're, you know, here because we're here. So that's, that's one is biophilic selection, is motivating this idea that everything exists. The other is cosmic, uh, there's a mechanism for doing it called cosmic inflation that I want to explain, but I can't explain it without one slide on fine-tuning. The fine-tuning is this. We observe cosmically that our universe is very flat within point oh, 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 whatever percent of a critical value. And that critical value is this. Our universe spatially could have been warped like a saddle where, if you remember Jennifer's talk yesterday, gravity slows things down forever but never brings it to a halt. It could have been the other way around, that gravity was so powerful, eventually it pulls everything back in and would make it too dense. We live at the balance point to the best of our ability to empirically discern it. And the funny thing about this balance point is it's very unstable. It's a lot easier to be in either one of the other two cases. We're sitting right in the middle. How come? The horizon problem is this problem. Why is the universe so smooth in terms of temperature? This room isn't smooth in temperature. It's hotter near the lights than it is down here. It's different temperature outside than it is in here. We don't have thermodynamic equilibrium here, but if you look out at the universe, at the night sky, it has a non-zero temperature in the microwave background, and it's different. There's hot spots in red, there's cool spots in blue, middle spots of yellow and green. You might think, well, it is different. Well, it's not much different. That color chart means that red is minus 270.4248 degrees uh, Celsius, whereas the uh, blue means it's minus 270.4252 degrees Celsius. It's a little bit different, but it's not a lot. In fact, if you took any reasonable average, it would be uniform. And this is what was discovered until the early 1990s when instruments were finally sensitive enough to detect these small differences. Okay, so what you say? Well, the so what is that the part of the universe that's way over here has had absolutely no time to interact with the part over there. It's never in its history had the opportunity to come to thermal equilibrium, yet we observe it to be that way. That's called the horizon problem, and inflation was designed to explain these problems. The idea is this. Very shortly after the Big Bang, there was something called a false vacuum that I will explain in a moment. This false vacuum generates a period of very rapid expansion of the universe where it doubles in size every 10 to the minus 34 seconds. So if this only happens for 10 to the minus 32 seconds, you increase the size of the universe by a factor of 2 to the 100, 2 times 2 times 2, 100 times, or about 10 to the exponent 30, and that makes a tiny little region that could have all been at one temperature, our whole thing. And that's the idea. So what is this false vacuum? Well, it's a vacuum energy density that is constant because there is nothing for it to depend on. So I suppose I had a piston with false vacuum inside. As I pulled out this piston, 
there'd be more vacuum. But the vacuum energy density is constant, so more vacuum means more energy. More energy means I need more force to compensate, but more force means I'm going to have a corresponding tension pulling it in. And a false vacuum, by definition, is a state of matter conjectured to exist in which, um, in which uh, matter and energy are, are, sorry, pressure and tension are at the same level. And uh, I just realized this thing has kicked out on me. So I'm going to have to improvise with a plug. My apologies for that. I thought I had enough battery power. Come on. And so this false vacuum is something in which tension and uh, in which tension and and pressure balance each other exactly. And what this causes gravitationally is for the universe to undergo this rapid, rapid exponential expansion. And the idea behind inflation is our universe once was in that state, it does this job, and so our actual Big Bang is a little bubble of true vacuum where this state of matter does not really exist relative to this uh, false vacuum in which it... Um, in which it really does exist. So this is what cosmic inflation is called, and it has the possibility of generating a multiverse. Because if you can have one bubble, you can have two. If you can have two, you can have many, and if you have many, then you can have as many as you like to do uh, whatever you like. And so this is what generates uh, a multiverse. So we have two reasons the multiverse comes here. One is biophilic selection, namely life looks special. Maybe it's special only because everything happens. The other is cosmic inflation. Here's a theoretical mechanism that could make as much um, universe as we want. It's, if you like, a universe-generating mechanism. And so those are two of the four reasons why people in cosmology are considering the fact that we live in, uh, in uh, multiple uh, universes. And as soon as I get this back, I will... be able to show you a picture of what I mean. So... All right, here we go. So this false vacuum um, does this. Here we are. So here's this false vacuum symbolized by blue. The idea is that there is um, a bubble of true vacuum that forms, and inflation makes it expand out to the enormous size of the universe we see today. And the part we can see is yet another tiny little part within there that under inflation and another 13, well, actually another 13 billion years later, becomes the whole universe we can see. I colored it green because it's life-friendly. So the idea is that our observable universe of 13 billion light years has this uniform temperature because of inflation. 
So this solves that problem. The flatness problem is solved because if you took a sphere and made it really, really big, from the viewpoint observers at the edge of the sphere, it looks flat, just the way the Earth looks flat to us because we're so small compared to its overall curvature. And so this has led to this Big Bang picture symbolized on the right. Inflation has made some general predictions that the density is close to the critical value and so the universe is flat, as I said, that on average there's equal hot and cold spots in the cosmic background and that the fluctuations in density have the same amplitude on all scales. So the point is this is a non-telic, a non-purposeful smoothing mechanism for replacing initial conditions and generates universes. So here it looks, here's the false vacuum created out of nothing, so you might say there's God, but the trouble is you've got our universe here, one big bang, but here's another one, and here's another one, and this just goes on and on. There are no special conditions because all conditions happen someplace in this false vacuum. So goes the idea. Here's a picture that suggests there is ob some observational support for inflation to an extent, but I won't go into it in view of time. The point I want to make is what we know about the universe now, we have bottom-up reasons from biophilic selection and top-down reasons from cosmic inflation as to why people are considering this. So let me turn in the end. Does everything indeed exist? It appeared on the cover of Scientific American where you can see infinite Earths and parallel universes really exist. I mean, I'm not making this up. <laughs> yes. So the idea is to go from inflation to the multiverse, our observable universe is just one itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny little thing in a much larger structure. And there's many variants of multiverse, but the standard one is we have parallel universes in a false vacuum. So the false vacuum, here I've got it in black. Here's our observable universe that I've pointed out. We live here in a much larger structure, but that much larger structure itself is sort of replicated elsewhere with another set of physical constants. And here's another one over here, and there's another and another and another and another, and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. So what are the implications of this? Does everything exist? Many cosmologists are saying, yeah. This is the only way we can understand biophilic selection, and this is the proper way in which to interpret cosmic inflation. Well, I think this has a number of scientific and theological implications. I've got five on each side, but I'll briefly touch on two scientific and two theological. Um, namely, the problem of duplication and unboundedness in science, and in theology, it's the puzzle of free will and the problem of evil. But there are other problems. I just don't have time to talk about them. So... Duplication, the Department of Redundancy Department. Here's our universe in here. George Ellis, who is a Christian, asked this question to show up some of the implication. What if this just goes on as much as we manage? Give me as much matter and energy as you like. Well, eventually, if you go out about 10 to the 10 to the 29 meters, you're going to meet your exact duplicate because there are only finitely many configurations that DNA could have, and if you have some mechanism for realizing all, and I mean all the possibilities, sooner or later you're going to meet yourself. Sooner or later we're going to meet a duplicate Earth, a duplicate ASA, a duplicate entire Hubble volume that we have. If this is right, I have given this talk infinitely many times. Not only that, each of you have given this talk where I'm in your place and you're in mine infinitely many times. Anybody here seen Groundhog Day? 
That's what's going to happen if you take this seriously. Whenever I mention this and push this with physicists, you know what they do? They giggle. If one biophilic region can exist, why not two? If two, why not many? What stops this? Why not infinitely many? The logical extension is that infinitely many biophilic regions exist somewhere, somewhen, infinitely many Earths with all possible variations. This means all possible social, psychological, and experimental outcomes will occur, have occurred, do occur somewhere. So you can't un rule out unlikely outcomes on the basis of chance. At least I don't see how. I think this is ultimately absurd. It means that everything that occurs is reasonless. Because whatever occurred out of the possibilities, you just say, well, that's one out of all the other things that already occurred. Now, sometimes this is reasonable, but sometimes it's not. And I think for the whole universe, not. OK, I'm, I'm closing in. What about unboundedness? This is the problem. It's a Pandora's box. Once you start on the multiverse, you can't stop. It's employing unbounded physical resources. I think philosophers and theologians need to think about this. I think it violates Occam's razor. Usually Occam's razor is about the economy of assumptions, simplest explanation, the most likely. But I think we're cheating here. If I bring in an arbitrary amount of stuff that if it doesn't do what I want, well, I'll just bring in more to get what I want. Is that really fair? Uh, it's foundationally fuzzified. We no longer have a closed system. It, I think it undermines the principle of induction. We don't know what is possible. Are we going to allow universes with time travel? Is Harry Potter and his buddies out there somewhere in the multiverse at Hogwarts? Does Hogwarts really exist? Or is that not allowed? If it's not, why not? If it is, why? What about theology? Choice without choice. In the multiverse, remember, everything potential is actual. There's no problem with infinite potential possibilities. The multiverse asserts that whatever could happen does happen. This is the problem. Do we have free will? Well, if every choice is realized, is free will a meaningful concept? It means whenever I choose between A and B, it doesn't matter what I choose, because somewhere else the other thing has been chosen. So I think this gives problems with lots of theological concepts like love, salvation, sacrifice, and let's say creativity. So here's a painter somewhere in the multiverse, Leonardo da, Vinci, splat Leonardo da Vinci splattered paint. That's what he got. And somewhere else in the multiverse he got that, and somewhere 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 he got that, and oh, <laughs> gee, I guess he got lucky. Well, in the multiverse, he really does get lucky. I mean, can you believe this? I, I can't, but what do I know? I'm just a physicist. I don't, un, what I mean by this is that we would not call mindless repetition giving a pattern creativity. No one honestly would call that. So if we believe this picture, I do not understand what the concept of creativity means. We have trouble with Christology. Okay, in our universe, Jesus died on the cross, but somewhere else, nope. If Jesus is the son of God, would God create a multiverse where sometimes Jesus decides to go and sometimes not? This is also a problem for space aliens. But So the other problem is most people say, look, can't believe in God because of the problem of evil. Well, if you believe in the multiverse, I mean, 
it's a lot worse. Bad things are more likely to happen than good ones. It's easier to be bad than good. So the multiverse has far more evil than good. The Holocaust repeats arbitrarily many times. We have tyranny without limit. Can we tolerate this theologically? So the trouble with everything is that we have an unbounded multiverse ahead. So people say, let's bound it. The problem is how. We have no experimental guidance. We have no compelling theoretical priors. We have no firm philosophical foundation. And we have no theological coherence. Apart from that, it's easy. So where next? Here I'll close. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus affirms a single universe. Or does he? There are Christians who think there's a multiverse because in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Which is it? Thank you. There was one over there. Yeah. yeah. It'll encode whatever ultimate constraints you put in in the original theory. But if you believe the constants of nature can be selected at random, then a bubble can appear randomly with one set of constants and randomly over here with a different set of constants or different initial starting conditions, whatever you want. So that's, that's basically the idea. I know. Oh, we've talked before. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>